We are in 1 Thessalonians, moving through it slowly. We are now looking at chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at the first five verses of chapter 3. So if you have not already, please turn your copy of God's Word to that section. If you don't have a Bible, there are blue Bibles located underneath the seats around you. They are there for you to use. In that Bible, you can turn to page 986, 986, and that will bring you to the section. I titled today's message, Concerned, Concerned. To be concerned about something or someone means that to one degree or another, you are worried or mentally distressed about it or them, okay? To one degree or another, you're worried or mentally distressed about it or them. That is what it is to be concerned. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you don't need to turn there, beginning in verse 26, the Apostle Paul, who also wrote 1 Thessalonians, wrote this to that church in Corinth. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, the Jews, dangers from the Gentiles, the non-Jews, Dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangerous among false brethren, those who claim to be followers of Christ but are not. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And then he says, Apart from such external things, the things he just mentioned, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the, day, for all the churches. Concern for all the churches. So that's his internal pressure, and it's a daily pressure that Paul expresses here, his concern for the churches. Beloved, what we care about, and Paul certainly if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, care greatly for the church, for the people of God, what we care about, what is important to us, we'll no doubt, uh, we will no doubt, if it is important to us, we will find ourselves concerned about that from time to time, or maybe all the time, depending on the circumstances. And out of concern, we will say and do what we wouldn't otherwise say and do if we were not concerned. And I'm sure you, most of you can, you understand what I'm saying, you can relate to this, but for those of you who have children, right, one who cares for their children, their children are important to them, they will be concerned about them, probably all the time, all the time, and, and even after they leave the house, still concerned that they might come back, and they do, um, but concerned, concerned about them, and even as they're growing up, you know, you're even, you're telling them things because you're concerned about them, you're concerned about their safety or their well-being, right, and so you will go out of your way to, to make sure they have certain instruction. Uh, you will tell them about the danger, possibly, of strangers in, in 
dangerous folks who might look to hurt them. You warn them, right, because you have a concern for their well-being. You, um, you're concerned about where they might go to school. You're concerned when they go to school. You're concerned about what's happening to them at school. And I'm not, I'm not talking about an unhealthy, out-of-control, consuming concern, but there will be a concern for those who you care about. That is natural. That is normal. You even see it with a car, especially a new car, right? When it's new, brand new, brand spanking new, it's generally very important to you. And you will then, because you're concerned about it, concerned about maybe someone denting it or concerned about uh, someone damaging it, you will do things you wouldn't otherwise do because you're concerned. You might park a great distance away to be in a spot without any cars near you because you're concerned that someone might bump your precious car, right? In fact, you might, you might spend time waxing that thing because you're concerned about what the elements will do to the luster and the beauty of that precious car. So you'll make sure you get a, a wax and a good wax or you'll have it waxed or something because you want to protect this precious and important thing, Yes? But you also know what happens when you do not really care about the car you own anymore, right? We have, we have two different types of cars. One we care about and one we don't. I love driving the one we don't because it's very easy to find a parking spot. And I'm not worried about how much space is between me and the other guy. I pull up right next to him, bang it, I don't care. And I'm a little more aggressive on the road, I'm just saying. No big deal. If you hit it, you hit it. I wouldn't normally do that, but with the other one, yes, because it's her car. More cautious. So it has to be important to me. More cautious. More cleaning. Right? You get it. So just keep that picture in mind because when we don't care about something or someone, or when a thing is or a person is really not that important to us, then we won't be concerned about it and we won't do those things that concern usually generates. And uh, I just want you to keep that in mind as we're making our way through this text because we're going to come back to it at the end to make some application. I would also add that we are generally, that we generally, to step back a little bit, we are concerned about what we care about. We generally care about that which we have a vested interest in or a personal stake in or an involvement in, i.e. our children, okay? Our children. Or another example that maybe you could relate to, if you have money invested in the stock market, you have a vested interest, then you care and might find yourself concerned about what's even occurring right now and for the past couple of weeks. And you might take actions because of that concern because you care about that money and what's happening that's invested in the stock market. But if you have no money invested in this market, then you probably don't even pay attention, right, to what is happening. You're not following it. You're not taking any actions. You don't care. You're not concerned. So just keep those things in mind. So our text this morning, 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 5, It could be summarized, the entire section, in one word. Concerned. Concerned. That's why I titled the message such, 
concerned, in this case, not about a new car or the money that you have in the market, but rather concerned about the people of God, concerned for the church of Jesus Christ. A little context here. The previous section we just looked at last week was 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 through 20. That's, that's a section that occurs right before chapter 3. It's at the end of chapter 2. That, tie, that section I titled Involuntary Separation. If you weren't here or you were here, you might remember that Paul is making his case that we have not remained away from you because we don't care. Not the case at all. We were ripped away from you, and we have, we have desired with all of our hearts to return to you, but have been unable because of supernatural opposition. Our great desire is to be with you again, to see you face to face. And so really, you could title that section, We Care About You. You are incredibly important to us. So that's been established. And now, flowing out of that care, we're going to see Paul talk about concern, their concern for the new believers in Thessalonica, Thessalonica, that is. So let me read first, just to get a flowing context. We'll begin in chapter 2, verse 17, and then read to the end of verse 5 of chapter 3. Paul says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Now chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore... When we could bear it no longer, we were willing, another translation puts it this way, we thought it best, we were willing, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For we, when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, Paul says, bear what? No longer. Well, in the context, as we've been studying, bear the burden or the strain on their hearts that came from three things. One, being forced to leave the believers in Thessalonica behind prematurely, earlier than they wanted to. That's chapter 2, verse 17. They, we, Paul says, we were torn away from you. Two, not having been able to revisit them as they wanted to go back because Satan had hindered them. 
chapter 2, verse 18. And three, as we've seen in the context, and we'll see here again in this section, knowing that fierce enemies of the gospel lived in Thessalonica and would certainly attempt to undermine the faith of the new believers there. It was all of that, and they could bear it no longer. Paul goes on to say in verse 1, because of this burden, really this concern, this deep, genuine concern that they had, they were willing, they thought it best, to be left behind at Athens, or left alone there, or left by themselves, is another way it's translated, at Athens. And so, Timothy was sent to Thessalonica. I want to go back right now to Acts for just a moment to review the travels of Paul and his missionary team that occurred around the writing of this letter and the circumstances that took place that are recorded in this letter and try to reconstruct those events for you it is pertinent to us uh, understanding some of what is being said and what's going on and why Timothy was sent. And so we're going to look at that now. You don't have to turn there. In chapter 16 of Acts, and I'm not going to cover every detail, just some of them and try to paint a picture for you of what occurred. And in chapter 16 of Acts, we learn there that a disciple, a follower of the Lord named Timothy, Timothy, he was a young adult man, who the scriptures tell us had a good reputation among the people. He was a good Christian young man. That he joined, Paul liked him, and Paul wanted him to join him and his other partner, Silas, or Silvanus. So it's the same person. We talked about that when I introduced the letter to you. So every time I say Silas, just realize it's Silvanus. It's the same guy, two names to refer to the same individual. But Paul wanted Timothy to join them, so that would make the three of them, in their gospel ministry. And we know Timothy was uh, a good man. I'll, I'll tell you, not only do the scriptures tell us that, but Timothy had a Jewish mother and a Greek father. And what we're told in the scriptures is that Paul, after taking Timothy, took him, this adult man, and had him circumcised. Adult man. Hello, adult man. Okay, so Timothy, he wasn't forced to. He went along with this. And so we believe he did that because he, Paul's mission was, as we've seen even in this, as we've been going through his letters, Paul's mission was to first preach to the Jew and then to the Gentile. If Timothy was uncircumcised, then while he was with Paul, it may have been more difficult for him to minister to the Jews because the Jews would have known that he had a a Jewish mother and a Greek father, and the fact that he was uncircumcised, they may have took it to mean that he uh, he was against any Jewish heritage or Jewish way, and they would have seen that as well, then you don't like the Jews, you're just a pagan Gentile Greek, we don't want to hear you. But if he got circumcised, then that would just remove that potential barrier. So it wasn't, Paul wasn't asking him to be circumcised because he thought circumcision brought salvation, but rather he saw it as a potential barrier as missionaries on the road to Jews and Gentiles. It could be a potential barrier, let's remove it, and Timothy agreed to it. 
And so he was in a unique place because now he could minister to Jews and because also he has a Greek father. He has that Gentile upbringing. He can minister to them as well. Great partner to the team. Okay, So I just bring that up because Timothy was seriously committed to the gospel and advancing it. He was. He demonstrated it at least by that. Okay, I mean, can you imagine that conversation? I can't. Really, Paul? Yeah, really. All right. Okay, let's do it. All right. So the missionary team now, this missionary team, Silas, Paul, Silvanus, Paul, Timothy, they made their way to the city of Philippi. In Philippi, Paul and Silas end up in prison. This is, again, this is what the things that we have recorded in the book of Acts. But they're quickly released. And then we learn they end up in prison because of their gospel activity. And then we learn in Acts 17 that Paul and Silas made their way, or Silvanus, made their way to Thessalonica. That's what we're told. However, and I brought this up in the introduction of the letter, Timothy's name is not mentioned in what is recorded in Acts concerning the visit to Thessalonica. And so that may mean that Timothy stayed behind at Philippi. But we don't know that for certain. But I am persuaded that he did that he did stay behind at Philippi, that he was not there on that initial uh, entrance into Thessalonica, that it was just Paul and Silas, and that he stayed behind. But we, we can't know that for sure. Now, concerning Thessalonica, we find out, again, that a group of unbelieving Jews worked to get Paul and Silas to leave Thessalonica before they wanted, wanted to. And again, Timothy is not mentioned. So then Paul and Silas make their way to Berea, Berea, again, cities. Then in Acts 17, we discover that Timothy is in Berea with Paul and Silas. But we don't know for sure when he got there. The scriptures don't tell us. So did he come with Paul and Silas from Thessalonica, but it's just not mentioned? Was he there with them? And so he's there already because he came with them when they had to leave? Or... Or did he stay behind in Philippi and then he arrived at some point uh, in Berea to meet up again with Paul and Silas? Again, we can't say for sure. However, while in Berea, while they're in Berea, we read this. Acts 17, verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica, okay, these are the same Jews that got Paul and Silas, and maybe Timothy too, but I think just Paul and Silas, because Timothy wasn't there, basically got them to leave Thessalonica in the first place and, and, and disrupt their gospel ministry that had been going on there. They now follow, they leave Thessalonica, and they come down to the next city Paul is in. When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, They came there too, and they did the same thing they did in Thessalonica, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. So now Paul's out again. They sent him away because they're they're after primarily Paul because he's the leader of the team. He's directing it. He's guiding it. He's the point man, so they want to take him down. They said, let's get Paul out of here. But Silas and Timothy remained there. They stayed there. In Berea, those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. 
Now, while Paul was waiting for them, who's the them? If you're following, who's he waiting for? Timothy and Silas. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. That's in Athens. And so he begins to proclaim or preach and make his way there and do gospel work there. But you get the picture. He's now in Athens. He, the people who brought him to Athens, he says, listen, I need, my, I need my guys with me. Tell them to come, okay? And now he's waiting. So we're told specifically, Silas and Timothy stayed behind. They stayed behind in Berea. Now, who's in Berea? along with uh, Silas and Timothy, these Jews from Thessalonica that are agitating and stirring up the crowds. We don't know how long they stayed there either. But certainly they had some probably more encounters with Silas and Timothy or they were aware of their activities there. Did Silas and Timothy ever make it to Athens? Did they ever come as Paul requested? The answer is yes. But Acts doesn't record that fact for us. We only know that because of what we read here in this letter that we're in by Paul to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians. We only know that because of that letter. Acts doesn't tell us that. So in 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 2, that we just read, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. What are you talking about, Paul? You have a mouse in your pocket? No. And we sent Timothy, okay? So we, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. So they're in Athens together, and from Athens, Timothy is dispatched. You got me? That's how we know that that occurred. Then in chapter 18 of Acts, we are informed that Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, still just trying to put the flow together. But Silas and Timothy were not with him. Paul was apparently alone when he left Athens. And that becomes clear from verse 5 of chapter 18 of Acts. There we read, when Silas and Timothy arrived. Okay? I'm sorry. Yeah, in Corinth. So Paul's now in Corinth. He went to Corinth. We see that in 18.1. He left Athens and went to Corinth. Now in verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived, meaning that they were not there. They got there, okay? And we don't know, we don't even know if they arrived at exactly the same time. We don't. We just don't have that detail, but they're there now, and they arrived from where? Macedonia. That's northern Greece, the area of northern Greece. I'm going to show you a map in a second. And we're told, the writer Luke says, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Sound familiar? That's what he does. That's his MO, to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. So he was going about doing what he normally does, but he was without his co-workers. So he comes to Athens alone. At some point, Silas and Timothy join him, but then he leaves Athens alone, ends up in Corinth, and eventually Silas and Timothy return, okay? So let me show you you a map real quick. This is basically, we're basically talking about Paul's second missionary journey, and I don't have a pointer or anything, but you can see up here, this area right up here. You guys all see the upper left corner? That's Macedonia. That's northern Greece. You see Thessalonica up there, Berea. You see Philippi before that. You see over here, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. That's where Paul picked up Timothy. 
Okay, so he's making his way, and we just read, we didn't cover every occurrence, but he made his way to Philippi, then to Thessalonica, to Berea, to Athens. See Athens down here, the southern portion, Achaia of Greece, and then over to Corinth, just so you can, you can leave it up there for a second. So he went to Athens from Berea. He went there alone. That's what we, at some point, best, based on 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 and 2, we know that he was reunited with Timothy and Silas or Silvanus in Athens. And remember, remember this, when they were in Berea, when Paul left Berea, why did he leave Berea? Because of those Jews who got them kicked out of Thessalonica, had made their way to Berea because they heard Paul was working there. They're agitating people. They're getting people upset. They're saying false things. They're slandering. But Silvanus, Silas, and Timothy are still in Berea. They're seeing this. They're hearing this. And Paul then makes his way to Athens. Eventually, though, they join him there. And sometime after their arrival, they're all there in Athens it's decided that Timothy should go to Thessalonica. So I don't, it's either back to Thessalonica because he was there originally with the original team or for the first time to go to Thessalonica. You go. You go to Thessalonica. And that he would leave Paul and Silas behind in Athens. But guess what? It appears that Silas did not stay with Paul either. Remember I told you when he left Athens, he was alone again. He made his way to Corinth and there we discover Silas and Timothy are joining him again. So Silas also was dispatched from Athens. Where? We don't know. We don't know. It is suggested that perhaps he went back to Philippi. So Timothy sent back to, sent to Thessalonica. Silas is sent back to Philippi. Why? Why would he be sent back to Philippi? Well, remember, they were arrested there. There's problems there too, so it's likely, maybe, that Paul Silas wanted to go back to Philippi to check on the saints there to see how they were doing and instruct them, but we, we don't know that for certain. All we know is that when Paul got to Corinth, when he left Achaia, he was by himself again, right? All by himself there in, in Athens, a place filled with pagan idols. Kind of hard to do ministry alone, pretty difficult, but there was concern, great concern among the group. And so they were willing to be split up, do things on their own, even be alone. At some point, Paul was totally alone in Athens for the sake of the local churches that they had ministered to and started to minister to them. They were willing to make that sacrifice. By the way, just for fun, from Athens to Thessalonica, so you can get some of because hard looking at a map, that's about 87 hours by foot. Five hours by car, but they didn't have cars, okay? So, you know, if you're doing four hours a day on foot, that would take probably 25 days. So it's, you know, it's not like a short little hop, you know? But um, anyway, that's kind of the traveling that's taking place. Now, you got all the history kind of reconstructed, what was occurring, the circumstances surrounding this letter. I've covered this before, but I want to do it again one more time as we're looking at this section. One writer says this. You can drop the map, brother. If the Jews had hounded Paul all the way to Berea. What would they do to his followers who did not move? Remember, these Jews lived in Thessalonica, and they were so bent against the gospel that they would leave and chase Paul. So when they, they eventually will make their way back, that's where they live. What will they do to the poor believers that are there? 
new believers. The uncertain, and by the way, it was thought, it was, it's been suggested, because it's not in the scriptures anywhere, if Silas didn't make his way back to Philippi, I showed you on the map, Philippi's not that far from Thessalonica. They may have been concerned that they would make their way over to Philippi and try to start problems there too. Attack the Christians there too. Go after them, make it difficult for them. So maybe that's why, or maybe, maybe that would make sense why Silas was sent back there. Because it was in that area, they could jump over there and create problems. So the writer goes on to say, the uncertainty concerning the effect on the Thessalonians of the storm of persecution raging around them produced an unbearable strain. Unable to endure the suspense, it was decided that Timothy should return to Thessalonica to encourage the brethren and to bring back a report concerning them. And you might be asking, why Timothy? Why not Paul? Well, this is why I think Timothy wasn't there. This is a strong argument for it. He's not mentioned. It's possible he's there and he's just not mentioned. That's possible. He wasn't, you know, the main guy. He was just a guy that was with them. But I think he's not mentioned because he wasn't there. And that would make sense why Silas and Paul said, listen, we can't go back. If we go back, they know us. We're immediately going to be attacked again. They're going to attack the church just for us being there. That's just going to make matters worse. Timothy hasn't been there. We need Timothy. We love Timothy. He's a devoted man, a committed man. Don't want to give him up right now. We're in this terrible, God-forsaken, pagan place. We sure could use him. But our heart's breaking, and we're very concerned about what's going on in Thessalonica. You saw those guys come down. And remember, remember, they had just returned from Berea. They gathered with Paul. They probably had more to report. These guys are crazy, Paul. They are bent. They are bent on destroying Christians. They probably got together and said, we can't. We got it. Someone's got to get there. Timothy, you'll go. You can go. They don't know who you are. And uh, you can minister to them because they certainly will need it. And you can find out how they're doing for our sake because our hearts are breaking and we're very concerned. And why are they concerned? Because they care. So they make a sacrifice and they send Timothy back. And I think it's even a bigger sacrifice because I think they would have probably talked about that Silas was leaving too, which meant Paul made a huge sacrifice because he's basically now going to be alone. Alone in ministry, and that is difficult, especially when you're, you're, not, you're surrounded by pagans. Yeah? It's like some of your workplaces. But think even, even greater because you're in your workplace and now let's say you're preaching the gospel every day. That's what you do. And you're taking heed for that, you know, because many Christians just avoid any problems in their pagan workplaces by just being quiet. But that's not what Paul was about. Paul was making the gospel known, so he was becoming a target everywhere he went. And so he needed his co-workers. He did better with his co-workers, just like we would his, his Christian brothers. But out of concern, out of concern, he makes the sacrifice. You with me? Do you see? So we, we decided, we sent Timothy back, and that we would be left here alone. It's also thought that if Timothy did go there, uh, originally, again, we don't know, maybe Timothy was part of the original team, then maybe they, he was sent back because he, he didn't have a prominent part in the original work. Maybe he was kind of on the outskirts a little bit. Maybe he just wasn't a forefront guy. So 
it's possible that he was able to go back in that case. And then Paul and Silas, you know, continue to move on. Silas going back possibly to Philippi. Paul making his way to Corinth. So now we're back to 1 Thessalonians, okay? Chapter 3, verse 2. There's the story. And we sent Timothy. Now you get the background. Our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. You know, we couldn't take it any longer. Our concern had grown to such a level that we had to do something. We wanted to come back to you. We were hindered. But now we decided, Timothy, you have to go. Go back or go there for the first time. We sent him. He's our co-worker in the, in the gospel of Christ. He's our brother. We sent him to establish and exhort you in your faith. He is God's co-worker or God's fellow worker. That's a pretty uh, heavy title for someone. They're a co-worker with God, right? He didn't, ju- he didn't just say he's our co-worker. He elevated him even higher. He said he's a co-worker with God. He's working with God to make the gospel known. Just as we are, Paul and Silas, he too is working with God to make God's gospel known, to make his son known. But why add those words about Timothy? See, and and these are good, it's good for you to pause when you're reading through the scriptures and just, what would it look like if the words weren't there? Could they not be there and I could still understand what was going on? You could. So then you got to ask, why add them? In other words, he, he could have just said, hey, we sent Timothy to establish and exhort you in the faith. Right? Why we sent Timothy our brother, and our probably means not just Paul and Silas, but our brother, church, church in Thessalonica, our brother in the faith, and God's co-worker in the gospel, making Jesus known. We sent him to you. Why say that? By the way, they knew who Timothy was, because at this point, Timothy has come back from Thessalonica, and that's why Paul wrote the letter. Paul, Timothy has returned from his trip and now Paul, and given him an update, and now, so they know who Timothy is. So it's not like in a first encounter, hey, I'm sending you Timothy. No, no, I sent Timothy to you. But here, let me say this thing about him. Why? One writer says, by stressing the status of Timothy, by elevating him and stressing that status, a brother in the faith, a, tr- a loved brother, a co-worker of God, in the gospel, Paul also stressed that the Thessalonians were important to him. The importance of the emissary, his representative that was sent, Timothy, reveals that Paul's inability to visit Thessalonica himself did not imply that he considered the Thessalonians unimportant. He goes on to say he was not a mere postman. Okay, I'm not sending just, yeah, we sent you the young guy, because we don't have any other use for him. We just wanted to send him to you. Maybe he could find out how you were doing. I don't know. You know, but we've got other more important things to do. That, what he's saying is, we sent you our guy. This guy is with us. This guy is with God, just as we are. We sent you our best. We couldn't come, but we are so concerned about you because we love you so much. We sent you the best. We sent you Timothy. And as you know, as you continue to read on, you'll see that Paul relied on Timothy again and again to send him back to churches, not just to say, hi, 
Why? But to encourage them and strengthen them and teach them and instruct them and come alongside them and find out how they were doing and give Paul reports back. Timothy was a trusted, elevated co-worker with Paul for the gospel. Another writer says this concerning these comments. He had sent to them no unworthy substitute, but a man fully capable of carrying out the mission assigned to him. It was another indication that Paul was concerned about the spiritual welfare of the readers. I sent you a man that can help you because we are concerned about you. That's why. That's why the extra words. So again, as we're looking at this, I want you just to continue to remember this is what concern looks like, concern for the spiritual well-being of others. Sacrifices are made. The best is put forth when one is truly concerned about the spiritual welfare of others. And of course, they will be concerned if they care about them, if they are important to them. Now, looking back to the text, Paul said, Timothy was sent in order to, as we said, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. Another uh, translation of the Bible, good one, puts it this way, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, strengthen and encourage you, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions disturbed by these afflictions, moved by these afflictions. Another translation says shaken by these afflictions. Another says unsettled by these trials. Timothy was sent because of a genuine concern for the spiritual well-being of the new believers in Thessalonica. It was a concern on the part of Paul and Silas, certainly, and it would include Timothy as well, knowing what they faced because he encountered it in Berea. He was sent specifically to try to prevent the new believers in Thessalonica from wavering in their commitment to Christ. So I've said this to you before. I mean, what's going on? So there are potentially these hostile, unbelieving Jews rejecting Jesus as the Christ. They're dwelling in Thessalonica, got Paul and Silas kicked out, are there chasing Paul to Berea, who knows what else but certainly ferocious and committed to their cause, which is against the gospel and against God. They're there. They're dwelling with them. They stirred up problems there. They're still there causing those problems, bringing suffering upon this new local church there in Thessalonica. So the believers could start thinking, what's going on on both sides, on the Jewish side and the pagan side? It was generally thought that if you are doing the right thing, serving God or your gods well, things would go well for you. And if things were not going well for you, then either you got the wrong God or you're doing something wrong, and all of that could be playing on their minds. They're thinking, wait a minute, we've now we've turned, because as I told you, Thessalonica is primarily Gentile. The believers there are primarily made up of Gentiles, previous pagans, and they're probably thinking, you know, they could be thinking, they could be tempted to think, things were a lot better when we worshiped our pagan gods. Now we've stepped over here, we've rejected them, we've turned to Christ, and we are getting it. 
in and out. Our friends are abandoning us. Our neighbors are turning against us. They're creating problems for us in our places of work and business. People are not buying from us anymore because we're following the one true Jesus. Did we make a mistake? Right? And they could begin to wonder, be shaken. So how is Timothy to help these suffering new believers in Thessalonica? Well, Paul says, by strengthening and encouraging them in their faith, in their trust in Jesus Christ and the gospel, so as not to be moved, disturbed, or shaken by the troubles and trials they were facing as followers of Christ. That first verb there, it means to strengthen, to fix, to make firm or solid. He wanted to shore them up. He wanted Timothy, and Timothy was a capable man, Grounded in the scriptures, he wanted Timothy to go back and shore them up, strengthen them, fortify them, provide a support or a buttress. He would provide, as one writer says, needed mental and spiritual support, right? Because if they start thinking wrongly, they're going to start acting wrongly. They need to make sure they're thinking rightly. They need to make sure they're thinking biblically. And Timothy would be just the man to go back and encourage them and strengthen them in that way. But even, even a spiritual support, Timothy coming and being there and, and being alongside them. And you see that in, in the second word, encourage them. He was to come alongside them, motivate them, stay the course, stay the course. Hold fast to the gospel that you have believed. Don't turn your back on Christ. Stay with him. You've done the right thing. No doubt, I would think, this strengthening and encouraging would include, as I said, speaking biblical truth into their lives, reminding them of what they had already learned. Isn't that a big portion of our Christian life? We need to continually be reminded of that which we have already learned and believed, but we are forgetful, or we take in information that twists what we originally believe correctly, it's been twisted now, and those twists can shake our faith, those perversions. So he would have reminded them of what they had already learned. He would have prayed with them, certainly would include that, this strengthening and this encouraging. I would guess we're not told. It's just very broad. He strengthened and encouraged them, but I might imagine he would share with them his own stories of God's grace and power. He would testify I can tell you this God is true and real. I can tell you exactly how that has been the case in my life, that sharing of life one-on-one with the other. I would imagine, as I said, he lovingly corrected any bad thinking that might have you know, came in, either from the influences from the outside, maybe even, maybe even Gentile friends they had, you know, whispering false things into their ears, and maybe they embraced some of it. It's possible. They needed to be strengthened. They needed to be encouraged. And as I said, his coming, his coming to them alone, just that, that he showed up from Paul, an emissary from Paul, would have been an immediate booster to their spirits. Paul has not forgotten us. Paul certainly cares about us. All this slander is not true. He sent Timothy, his brother, our brother, 
a co-worker with God. He sent him to us. He, he wanted him certainly with him. He supports him. He helps him. But he was willing to be left alone there in Athens that he might come to us to help us. He cares about us. He's concerned about us. All of that would have been a help. Yeah? Just keep all this in mind. Right now, we're not applying any of it, right? But we will. We will. Here in a moment. So let's look back to the text. For you yourselves know, he goes on to say, that we were destined for this. For what? For the afflictions that they were suffering as followers of Christ. And then he says in verse 4, For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. When we were there, we were telling you that. Remember? Don't think this is odd, strange, or out of the norm, or that you've done something wrong. It's none of that. We are going to suffer affliction as followers of Christ in a dark world that we find ourselves in. He says, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. What I told you came about, just as I said. Which, again, would add more validity uh, to Paul. It happened just as I said it would. You should not be shocked or surprised. One writer says, Paul added his own stabilizing reminder here that trials are not necessarily a sign of God's disfavor, but they are a part of every Christian's legacy. Another writer says, it's very interesting to learn that a regular topic of Paul's instruction to converts was the inevitability of suffering. I don't know how much that is a regular part of our uh, initial gospel presentations. And again, again, taking all things into consideration, we live in a particular place on the planet where we don't necessarily face the same type of immediate dangers and threats as Paul and his team did, uh, bringing the gospel brand new, never heard before, into these pagan lands, okay? So certainly, but the reality is still true for us to one degree or another. But I wonder, you know, is that really a part of our, hey, aren't you glad you became a Christian? By the way, as a part of that, you're going to suffer. Now, I don't know how much, but certainly more or in a different way than those who are of the world. Because you are no longer of the world, but of Christ. And the world cannot tolerate Christ. Therefore, they will not tolerate you. And that will show up in one way or another in afflictions. But Paul warned them. Of course Paul would warn them. Jesus taught it as well, right? You'll have troubles in this world, but fear not, I have overcome the world. One writer says, perhaps the best way to protect people from being upset by tribulation is to remind them that it is a necessary part of our Christian vocation. So, And we've spent time doing that here as we went through 1 Peter. Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. You should anticipate such things as a follower of Christ. Our Lord suffered. We follow him which means we will suffer as well, to one degree or another. Now let's look at verse 5. For this reason, after he just got through talking about the suffering that they had endured and, and had occurred just as he had told them it would, so don't be surprised. For this reason, 
when I, so now he goes from we in verse 1, he's making the same exact statement, but for, instead of saying we, he says I, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer. So when we could bear it no longer, we discussed it, we sent Timothy to you. Now he's expressing even his personal feelings specifically, and for this reason, knowing about their suffering, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn or fear of their suffering that would have occurred, I sent to learn about your faith. So I sent Timothy, I needed to find out, I could bear it no longer, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. For this reason. Again, because the tribulation that he had foretold had actually befallen his readers, for this reason, I could bear it no longer, I needed to know. Have you turned your backs on Christ because of it? Have you given up your faith? One writer says, you know, him saying I here, it, it doesn't mean that he's implying that the others did not share that very same feeling of concern, but it enables him to speak more explicitly of his own personal feelings and motives in the sending of Timothy. It doesn't mean that Silas wasn't concerned about the same thing, but I, indeed, I was. Paul. It's not the first time we hear Paul speak of things such as that, of being concerned that his labors may have been in vain. He talks about the tempter. He's worried about the tempter, right? Who's the tempter, do you think? Yeah, it's Satan. Enemy of God. The one who actively works, actively works. He does not sleep. Actively works to prevent the spread of the gospel and harm the children of God break up churches, ruin lives. But you'll notice that Paul doesn't, as one writer points out, he doesn't identify this great foe by his name here. He doesn't refer to him as Satan here. Earlier he said Satan had hindered us, but here he refers to what? His activity, which is characteristic of him. He's the tempter. He is tempting That's what he does. One writer puts it this way, the present participle that we find there, the tempter, pictures him as persistently engaged in the effort to destroy the faith of the Thessalonians through temptation. He never gives up his sinister efforts. There's only one other place that we find that phrase in the scriptures. It is in Matthew 4.3. You might remember that encounter. The tempter came to tempt the Lord Jesus Christ. He who was the tempter of our Lord is also the tempter of his people. Paul knows that. He's aware of it. He's aware of the dangers. It reminds me again. One who's aware of the dangers that are ever present to our children is concerned. Right? They're aware. They're concerned. I mean, if... If they're not concerned, then either they don't care about the child or they're not aware of the dangers. It's one or the other. But being aware, they're very concerned because they care about this little one. And out of concern, then they warn them and they watch out for them. Huh? It is 
similar. There's an ever-present danger, a great enemy of God's people and of the church and of Christ who looks to tempt and draw people away from the gospel, from their faith, from what they've put their hope and confidence in, undermine it, constantly working. Do you know that to be true? It is true. It's like, it's like when I first showed my kids a map of sex offenders on Megan's list. They didn't know before. But once they realized that there were dangers just down the street from us, they were concerned. I was concerned. Knowing these things would then cause you to take particular actions if one is concerned, and knowing the danger, one should be concerned if they have care or, or if they find if they're, these children are important to them, they'd be concerned, right? The enemy is always working. I used to be in the termite business. It's the worst thing about termites. They don't sleep. They continually, it's great for the termite business, but terrible for homeowners. They work and they work and they work and they work to destroy your home. So at the end of verse 5, he says, there's a fear that their labor would be in vain because of knowledge of this tempter and knowing he's working through these Unbelieving Jews there, you can see that. He's behind all that. No doubt, we know the unbelieving Jews stirred up also Gentiles to act against the church. So many ways, so many strategies. Paul's concern is legitimate. One writer says, The apostles' fear was that the tempter, Satan, might have, attempted, have tempted them successfully to reject the gospel truth. And if Satan had succeeded in his assault on the Thessalonians, Paul knew that their labor among them would have been in vain. He was concerned about the Thessalonians' faith. He wanted to know that it was real rather than superficial. Is it real? Was it real? Did he get you? Hmm? I don't... You know, when I, when I was reading this and I was thinking, one way we might think of this, and I don't think that's how Paul is expressing it at all, is, is like, I don't know, building a stack, of, a house of cards, you know, with playing cards. You build it in the backyard on the table. Hours poured into it. All day long, you built this elaborate, wonderful house of cards. Yeah? Wow. And then, whoosh, wind comes gone. And you're like, man, I labored in vain. You know how much work I put into that and it's just gone? Right? That's how, that's how we might express such things, you know? Or you build a home and you spent your, you know, several years building a home and a fire just comes along and wipes it out and you're like, unbelievable, in vain, man, all that effort, now it's just gone. I don't think I don't think that's Paul's spirit. I think when he says, for fear that I had labored in vain, 
is because what would that mean? It would mean that they were still lost. It would mean that these people that he had great affections for and love for now and got to know personally have turned their back on the Lord. Now where do they go? What is left for them? Nothing. They've heard the truth. If they've now turned their back on the truth, if that has happened, what's left? Right? That's Paul's spirit, I think. Man, I hope, I hope the tempter didn't take away from the work that we, we poured in. Now, let me just apply this and give you something to think about. Obviously, he would have that fear, you know, because he cared deeply for the Thessalonians, for the Christians, those who profess faith there. He cared deeply for them. He did not know what had occurred. He had not been able to get back, but he loved them. He had an affection for them. They were important to him. He spends a great deal of time trying to communicate that in the letter, as I've explained to you, because, no doubt, slander was occurring there. They were saying awful things about Paul, that he was just another one of those traveling itinerary speakers who was just there to try to get something from them. Paul's going out of his way to to remind them of what they really know. I love you. I care about you. As he says, my separation from you was not voluntary. I, I wasn't just, I didn't, I didn't leave, nor have I been away from you just because, you know, I had nothing better to do or some silly reason. We've desired to be with you. I care about you. And, and in this care flowing out of that is this great concern. I'm concerned. I know I know the dangers that are lurking right there in your community, right there around you. Those very people who sent us out chased me all the way to Berea. I am aware of the evil one and his strategies, his relentlessness, the tempter. I have great concern for you. Specifically, your spiritual welfare. So I'm going to make a sacrifice. We're going to send Timothy. We're going to send our best. To do what? To hang out with you? To chill? No. To strengthen you. Right? To encourage you in the faith that you may not be shaken. And to bring me back the report I hope, I hope with all my heart that I will hear that you are continuing in the faith in in once you once believed I want, I desire the very best for you, okay? So, what we care about, going back to the beginning, what we care about, what is important to us, will inevitably be something that we are concerned about and then we will act accordingly. And I would say the reverse is true as well. If we have no concern for it, and the actions that accompany such concern, then it's because, I would say, we don't care about it. Hello? Right? Are you concerned about the spiritual well-being of your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you? For many, I think, the answer would be yes, absolutely. Absolutely. 
And you could demonstrate that concern by recalling your actions, right? You're making sacrifices for your brothers and sisters in Christ. You are seeking their spiritual well-being. You are doing things to that end for that goal. You care about their spiritual well-being. You ask them. You want to know how they're doing. It's not superficial. Hmm? We are, you know, as you know, going through a book in growth groups called Love or Die, right? Love or Die. You remember the warning to the church in Ephesus? Remember what Jesus said? He rebuked them because they had forgotten their love, that they had it first. They'd done many things well, but they had forgotten their love. If love is there, care will be there, concern will be there, and out of that concern, actions will follow. It'll show up in your life. Are you concerned about the spiritual well-being of your brothers and sisters? Are you? If not, why not? It could be. Because they're not your brothers and sisters. You, you are not invested in them because you've never been put into the body of Christ. It could be that. It could also be that other things have invaded that spot that belongs to love of God and of brother and sister. So you've allowed everything else in your life to creep in and push that out. You love everything else but that. Or it's diminished because you have no time for it. So you care not, you're concerned not, it shows up in nothing, no activity. This is a way to evaluate your life as a Christian. If you are concerned, it'll show up and you can thank God for that, that he has given you a care, a love for your brothers and sisters in Christ, and it shows up fantastic, that's wonderful. But let me ask again, is the spiritual well-being of your brothers and sisters in Christ, is it something you're concerned about? The church is always in danger. Always. The tempter right now is working. Not, not because I'm thinking of something specific, but because he is always working. If you give me a second, I can come up with some specifics, but this is not the place to share that. He's always working. He's working in your individual lives. He's working in the lives of the people right next to you, right next to you. He's working to ruin them, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you hear me? He is working. That's what he does. He does not let up. The danger is real. He's right in your neighborhood. My goodness, he's in your home. If you are concerned, then you would make it your aim in various ways, beloved, to strengthen and encourage other Christians in their faith. Right? If you're not, then what does that say? If you're making no effort, okay? The enemy is real. The enemy looks to hurt the people of God, which are here. If you care about them, if they're important to them, then you'll be concerned about such things, and you would look to, in various ways, to strengthen and encourage them. Which, I mean, look, at minimum, I'll just give you like an example. Like, it's just showing up would be a good start. Honestly, I don't, 
So Timothy was there, it's like I told you. He was there, he was with them, making an effort to be with the people, to be there with them. You know, brother, we talked about this, right? You and I, right here. We talked about this, just the fact that when we come together again and again and again, still here, you look at each other, we can say to each other, you know, this thing must be real. I mean, we can't all be crazy. Now we could. We could all be crazy. But there's an affirmation that comes from another brother or sister coming to you and affirming the very same things that you believe, but the world continues to undermine all throughout the week. So you come together. You encourage one just, just by being there. It's like, okay, they took, because no one has to be here. None of you. You're not paid. I have to be here. But you guys don't have to be here. I could find another job. You guys don't have to be here. You come, and that's every time you come, and, and not just to this, but to growth group, to men's study, to women's study, to the times that we have to encounter one another, be with one another, fellowship with one another. You come. You made a decision to come. That in itself is an affirmation. It reinforces you. I mean, imagine, imagine if it was just Isaac and me here today. Imagine. How would Isaac feel? He'd be like, ah, man. What if that went on for a couple of weeks? So you make, you make attendance to church a priority to, with the gathering with the people of God, not because you're trying to check off a list and get good with God. You're already good with God through Christ. Not because of that, but because of your love for the people of God and your concern for them. And you know that when you don't show up over and over and over again, it causes them to be thinking, well, maybe they don't think it's that important. Is it that important? But on the flip side, when you show up, you're there through the thick and the thin, then they say, look, they're there, they're staying with it, and it encourages them. That's a basic, simple example I just gave you. And yet, so just cast aside. Ah, go to church, not go to church, whatever. Are you kidding me? That demonstrates a total lack of concern for the body of Christ, which tells me there's a lack of care, a lack of love, a lack of affection. That needs to be repented of. I, I'm way over like normal. But do you pray for your brothers and sisters? You would pray for your brothers and sisters and specifically for their spiritual well-being. Oh Lord, help them, help them to be strong. You would pray for them if you were concerned about them and you'd be concerned about them if you knew that the tempter was there all the time working. And of course, you would be concerned about them if you cared about them. Yeah? Yeah. So don't, when you're looking and you're evaluating your life, don't say, my lack of prayer for my brothers and sisters in Christ is, you know, something else. I'm just, I guess I'm lazy or I don't know. I just never get around to it. No, no. It's lack of affection. Or you just don't know the dangers, but now I've just informed you. Knowing the dangers, then, you should be regularly praying. And, of course, how would you pray for them rightly and appropriately and specifically unless you knew about them? But if I don't care about them, then why would I ask anything more than, where are you going for lunch? How was your week? I mean, that's a start, though. That's a start. It could be in the right direction. But if I am concerned about people, Paul had to know. 
He had to know. He sent his best back. You got to tell me, how are they doing? Not just like, how are they doing? You know, how's life going in general? How are they doing? Are they growing in the faith? Are they staying with Christ? Are they following him? You want to know. So you want to know where your brothers and sisters are striving and growing so that you can encourage them and cheer them on. And you want to know where they're hurting and they're struggling and they're being tempted right now by the tempter so that you can come alongside them, strengthen them with the scriptures, pray for them. Just be with them. Yeah, you would do that. You would do that if you really loved them. And we know, brothers and sisters, our love so easily grows cold. Huh? Our affections wane. That's why we fight for love. We must fight for it. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your church. What a blessing. And oh, how we take it for granted. Help us, Father. Help us even now to work in our hearts through your spirit. Point out those, point out in our lives where we, our love has grown cold, Father. Demonstrated by the fact that we aren't even concerned. Not about that, not about our brothers and sisters, not about the people that are sitting right next to us. Not really, not really. Concerned about a lot of other things, but not that. Father, that be true to any degree in us. May we be convicted and may we repent. May we call it what it is. May we turn to you, may we cry out to you. And we seek that love that we had at first. And Father, on the flip side for us that we have a great concern for our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially those that are right here, right in this local body assembled together right here within touching distance. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for bringing us together and knitting our hearts together in the way that you have. You know that we can't do this alone. We need one another bad. Father, may we all realize that. In Christ's name, amen.